Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So for those of you who will be watching the Super Bowl, I would imagine, well, maybe this is a thing of my generation, that there will be someone with a sign that says John 3.16. I, I, I think there might be. Um, I'm sure you've seen the sign or maybe a placard or received a tract with this one verse. And it's a great verse to summarize all of God's word. In fact, the great reformer Martin Luther, he describes this verse as the heart of the Bible. And then the title of this message, he also described it this way, the gospel in miniature. My hope today and next week as we're gonna look at this one verse alone is to show you why this is truly a great picture of what this verse is, the gospel in miniature. We're gonna look at the four parts of this verse, two this week, two next week. The first two this week is the extravagance of God's love, the extent of God's grace. That's this week. And then next week, we'll look at the exclusivity of God's gospel and the eternity of God's salvation. So there's a lot to cover. And you might wonder how in the world does one verse lead to so much? Really, two weeks of messages won't really be able to cover this. So first, we'll look at the extravagance of God's love. And we'll begin with this first phrase of John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world. And I emphasize that word for because it's a very important word when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to logic. Because the word for essentially means anything that is prior to what is being said is going to set the stage for the meaning of what is going to be said. In other words, context so if you ever see the word for, it means look out for the context. So what is the context? Well, actually, we've been in the context for quite a while. We've been talking about John chapter 3 and Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And in it, we saw quite often how Jesus was saying, you have to be born again. In fact, in verse 3, we are told Jesus says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So that is emphasized time and time again, meaning Jesus goes to great lengths to show us that our good morality, our good works, our religious works, our intellect, our skill, our effort, none of that can cause someone to be born again. And then now we move towards the immediate context. So here's verse 16. What was said in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3? And we spent last week talking about that. In these verses, Jesus says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. We have to believe Jesus was lifted up for us. And that's the only way eternal life is possible. We see then that in order for us to actually be born again, there is a cost to be paid. The cost is Christ on that cross. And then there is a condition that needs to be met. You have to believe. You have to actually trust in the work of Christ on that cross. 
So John 3.16 is not an umbrella insurance policy for us or for the world. It's not Jesus died for the world, so therefore the whole world is saved. Rather, it's to say that there's this emphasis on this cost, the work of Christ, and then our response to that work, our believing. So that's the four. We have that in mind. And then next, in that small little phrase in the beginning of chapter 3, verse 16, it says, for God so loved the world. Wasn't that God loved the world? It's that God so loved the world. He loved us far more than we could, as the Apostle Paul says, ask or imagine. It's just not possible to imagine God's love. And so God's love goes beyond our understanding. It goes beyond what we could possibly do ourselves. And what makes this love so unimaginable is the object of the love. If you look at that part again, it says, for God so loved the world. Now, when the Bible uses the word world, it uses it in three different ways. The first is the world of creation. So the world we live in, the earth, planet earth. God created the heavens and the earth. But when you look at the context, you know that's not necessarily how John is, uh, Jesus is using this word. Secondly, world refers to people. So all the different people in the earth. But they're if you, again, go back to the immediate context in verses 14 and 15, and also the idea that you must be born again, clearly there's a limit to this idea of world. It's not all people, but it's some people. The third use of the word world in the New Testament, and especially in the Gospel of John, is actually the world is referring to a world of sinners, or people who have no love for God, who don't care for him, who actually are what the Bible describes as God's enemies in Romans 5.10. So it's people who do not love God, who actually want nothing to do with him. And my friends, that is the usage of the word world here. If we look at 1 John 2.15, the same John who is describing this world puts it this way, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, what a contrast between John 3.16's use of the word world and John's letter in his use of the word world. How can it be that we're not supposed to love the world, but then Jesus says, for God so loved the world? I actually think it does a wonderful um, job of describing the significance and extravagance of God's love. That is to say, the world that God loves is a world of sinners. And my friends, there is not a person in this room who does not fit into that category. Whether you are a Christian or not, whether you have been born again or not, know this is that every person was born not loving God, not wanting to, anything to do with him. Actually, being his enemy, as the Apostle Paul describes it, being an object of God's wrath. So, Another way that Paul describes it is this way in Ephesians 2, 1 through 2. Our state before we knew Christ. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of, and here we have the word world, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to consider the idea that when we live in this world, we want to follow it. We want to follow what media says about what is 
what gives us significance and safety and security. We want to follow what our friends think about what is important. And we're tempted by it constantly. We want to follow what we believe ourselves to be right and good. And so in this way, when we are dead to sin, we follow the world. The world is our hope. It's our great treasure. But it's no wonder that when you're about to take your last breath, the just abject fear riddles your soul because that's all you have is this world. God, though, when he loved the world, he doesn't give the world to obedient people. He doesn't give the world uh, his love to Christians. He doesn't give his love to people who care for him, who find Jesus wonderful. According to John 3.16, what Jesus is saying is, for God so loved a sinful world, God gave his love to me and you, even though we wanted nothing to do with him. He gave his son to people who were in their hearts just as rebellious as anyone who lives in this world today. I told this story during prayer week, um, so I repeat it for those who were not here during that time. I have a friend who was visiting with us during that weekend, and he has an adopted son. His name is Alex. They picked him up from an orphanage in China when he was eight years old. And when he, his wife went to pick him up at the orphanage, he was, as he describes it, literally hopping around like a monkey and grunting like a beast. He also had a really bad cleft palate. He had one surgery. He's actually had post four different surgeries since they've adopted him, and he has multiple ones coming soon. And so he was living in this one orphanage and this orphanage was unique in that it was intended for children with cerebral palsy. So everyone has, all these kids who are orphans, rejected by society, have cerebral palsy, except for about three children, Alex being one of them. In each one of those children, they, um, they basically were, had to act as slaves. And they were in charge with his debilitated state in charge of feeding all the different kids who have cerebral palsy. It's just unimaginable. So when I think about that, that concept of being enslaved to this condition, when the Apostle Paul describes in Romans chapter 6, and Romans 9, and Ephesians 2, our enslavement to sin, it is no different than what Alex faced in this orphanage. It would have been easier for Alex to have been able to do calculus as soon as they returned him home to the United States than for us to turn to Christ in our enslaved and in orphaned state. So in John 3.16, when it says, for God so loved the world, the reason we know this is a true statement is because we know that was the condition we were in. God's love doesn't seem so grand unless you know how dark our hearts were. Unless you truly believe and agree with the Apostle Paul that we were once God's enemies, that we had not a single desire for him, and we have to realize this, you cannot know the amazing love of God unless you understand what it took, what it cost God to love us. When my friend's wife went to go pick up their son because due to just certain circumstances, he wasn't able to go, and so she went by herself. She called my friend and said, I cannot bring him home. 
not in this state. He is so much worse than I ever thought he was in. But together, after much consolation, they did bring him home. And today, he's actually, he's 14 years old and he's an amazing kid. Um, my friends, we were in a much worse state than we could ever imagine. We shouldn't have been picked up and brought home. But for God so loved the world, so loved us, that he decided to bring you home. But it cost him dearly. It, this is extravagant love. Extravagant love is never understood without the cost. If love is simply about bringing someone home who is clean and smart and pretty and gentle and listens all the time and obedient, well, that's a pretty easy person to love. I would say, do we understand love? But it is really difficult to bring someone home who is gross and dirty and dumb and unhealthy and angry and off the wall and rebellious and disobedient. That takes supernatural love, extravagant supernatural love to bring someone like that home, let alone to adopt them. And this is what our God has done for us. So when you see John 3.16 and hear it, may it melt your heart of the hardness that has been there to say, oh, that's John 3.16, I memorized that, I know what it is, for God to love the world that he gives us. And we literally say it like a mantra, like a Buddhist mantra. But it says, for God so loved me, someone like me. That's the extravagance of God's love. Secondly is the extent of God's grace. Again, let's look at John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, if it were me and I was Jesus, I wouldn't have used the word gave. I would have used the word sent because that seems to make sense logically. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. And there are instances in the New Testament where the word send or sent is used. But in this one instance where Jesus is trying to explain to Nicodemus what it must take for Nicodemus, you to be born again because you are so far from ever knowing the Father's love, you need to see that God so loved the world that he gave. Now, what does he mean by gave? Why use the word gave? Why use the word give? The word give emphasizes the suffering, the fact that there is going to be a substitution. Paul writes in Titus chapter 2, verses 13, 14, God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God gives his son to buy back, to buy back from sin and death forever so that we could be set free from that. In 1 John 5.11, John writes, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. In his son means when Jesus died, we died. When he's raised, we're raised. It's the union with Christ. It's this idea that we are together. To emphasize this all the more in Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. We're together with him. We're united with him. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So there is no doubt 
that God's giving over his son is so much more than merely sending. You know why? Because sending in the Bible, God sends prophets. God sent John the Baptist. But what God didn't do is give them over. And the word give is also the word that's used in the New Testament, deliver, to deliver over. And that concept is so striking if you consider it. Listen to how it's used in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 and 15, then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Same word. And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And then in Luke twenty-two nineteen, 19, same word. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And it's the same idea. It's been delivered for you. Here's the idea behind the word give, is that God delivered his son. He gave him over to death and suffering. That's not just merely sending. It's God actively, intentionally having the idea of, I am going to give over, deliver over my son so that he could suffer and die and be a substitute for our sins. I don't think there's a parent in this room who will give over your son, your daughter, for someone else, let alone someone who has no care for and love them. You know, that's absurd, isn't it? That is the foolishness of the cross. We Christians, we believe in idiocy. We're morons. If this is false, then it's absolutely ludicrous. But as the Apostle Paul says, it is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the love of God. It is the extravagant love of God that God would take his own son and be the one who hands him over. It's not Judas. It's not the Roman guards. It's not Pontius Pilate. We read the story and we're so fixated on all who were involved in the crucifixion. It's not the Jewish leaders. It's God the Father delivering over. We must never forget that. The initiator of all of this work is God himself. And it would cost God's own son. There, it's no wonder why people who hate the gospel call God a cosmic child abuser. It sounds like it. It's, you almost have to think that has to be the rational solution because I can't imagine someone doing that and still being good and just and kind. See, we're so fixated on the idea that, God, you're not good to me because I didn't, I didn't get the job that I wanted. You're not good to me because I'm not getting healing. You're not loving. Rather than thinking, God, how can you do this? How can you send your son to take my place? That doesn't make sense to me. It's so absurd. But this is the idea of every time you see in the football game, John 3.16, or in a tract, you remember, for God so loved the world that he would deliver over his son for me, knowing that I have no desire for him. Again, in John 3, 14, 15, we saw that the Son of Man had to be lifted up. It was the only way. If there could have been any other way that God could have chosen to both satisfy his justice 
and also express his perfect love, do you think God would have come up with a different way? Of course he would. God doesn't love to give his son, but it was the only way God could be God and still love the world as he does. Now to really hone in on this idea of what it means for God to give his son, to deliver him over, we have to go to this verse that we've just gone to many times, Galatians 3.13, what the law demands. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Why is it such a curse to be hung on a tree? You have to imagine, put on your imagination hats for a moment. If you ever saw a movie or a TV show that has a hanging, you know, I've never, I don't think any of us in this room have ever seen someone physically hung. But a hanging is, it's horrific. People are, they usually capture someone who is, say, a criminal in the past, and they would hang them in the town square. And the purpose of that was that everyone would be gathered, and you would either have to look away because it was such a horrid scene, or you would be staring because it's such a horrid scene. It's, it's one or the other. And what you see when you stare is you see a man who has a broken neck. And you see limbs just laying out with no life. And you, there's clothing without any control. Any, it's just hanging there. And you know, I know for many of us, as we're about to go to a special event, we maybe fix our hair, we put on makeup, we, you know, we take a shower, we do whatever we can to look our best. At hangings, you look your worst. There's nothing you can do to look good. Hangings also generally were meant to have a quick death, although sometimes it didn't always lead to that. But generally speaking, when the chair or the, the, uh, you know, the floor dropped, you broke your neck, you were dead. The cross is exactly the opposite. The cross is a hanging too. But the difference is that the cross was meant to make you live as long as you possibly could while suffering. On top of that, unlike a hanging where usually you were hung with your clothing on, the cross, you were naked completely. So any depiction of Jesus on a cross, say a crucifix, where there's a loincloth, there's no loincloth. Can you imagine Jesus is hanging naked on a cross, alive, every breath being incredibly difficult, and his mother is there. His mother. Mothers, imagine that of your son hanging naked on a cross, hung so that every person who walks by sees every single shame and disgrace. Why did Jesus suffer like that? Was it because he did something terrible? Was he a political criminal? Was he a murderer, a thief? Did he lust? Did he steal? He did none of that. His heart was pure. His mind was perfectly pure. And yet he died the most disgraceful, shameful way you could ever die. This is our God. Why did Jesus go through this? He was innocent. He had nothing to hide. 
But he died this way because of us, because we have everything to hide. We are hiders. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned, what was the first thing they did? They hid because they were ashamed. That's what sin does. As soon as you do something wrong, as soon as you look at some illicit picture, as soon as you have an affair, as soon as you say a critical word, a word of gossip, it's shameful. And you don't want anyone to know. We will do everything we can. If we lie, we cover the lie. If we say a word, we don't want anyone to know that we were the, the source of that critical word. We're afraid of gossip. We're afraid. We do our, we look at scenes of pornography in the quietest of places, making sure no one knows. If we have a foul mouth, we make sure only certain people hear it. If we get drunk, we do it in the quiet of our room. Why? Because it is shameful. It's natural that it's shameful. We can hide it. And even then, there's something in our hearts that's still hidden and in our minds, the things we think about. If we were to be able to play it all out, it would be so shameful and disgraceful. Jesus died this way for our shame, for our hiddenness, for our, rep our attempts to hide our reputation, to look good on the outside, but inside there's such corruption. This past prayer week, we were praying much about repentance. It wasn't our intent, actually. We were talking initially about, as our staff, what can we spend praying about this week? And we thought about the retreat, and the retreat's theme was return to me. And then from there, we thought, how about revival, refreshing? And so we, I went through uh, Acts and looked up times of refreshing. And when I saw what Luke was recording there, it just seemed to tie in so tightly with repentance. And the more we thought about revival and the more we kept on talking about revival and refreshing, couldn't move away from repentance. Repentance became such a key part of revival. If actually you're really struggling and you're dry of heart, you're hard, maybe you're angry these days, maybe you're just irritable, you're frustrated, I guarantee you, if you want to experience freedom from that, it starts with repentance. And so this week, this past week, when we're praying, it just that theme kept on coming up, repentance. But here's the thing. Repentance is not about groveling before God. It's not. I used to know, and different people, when they would pray repentant prayers, sometimes you would hit somebody. Boom, boom. You hit. Like, it's actually pretty shocking. There have been almost cult-like groups that during repentance prayers, they will hit them so much that they'll get black and blues. People have died from this. But no matter how much you hit someone, no matter how much you get hit, even if you die, you cannot repent enough of your sins. It won't cover it. Not even, it's infinitely small, whatever you try to do to pay back your sins. No, that's not how it works. Repentance is the realization that Christ has given his life for you and that desire now to change and to say, empowered by that, say, I want to live differently, Lord. Not out of a groveling, but out of a great desire to want to say, this is, I'm not going to live this way anymore. You're not trying to protect your reputation anymore. You're not trying to guard your heart from 
for perfectionism. You're not so afraid of people finding out your dark, dirty secrets. If they find out, and sometimes it needs to be found out for you to be free. Actually, all the time, really. We can't be our own savior. Every time we hide, we're trying to protect ourselves and save ourselves from ourselves. And it's a vicious cycle. It draws you inward. It makes you down and depressed and darkened in your heart. But once you open your heart and reveal and repent and even confess sin to one another, if you've hurt someone, to go up to them and say, I've hurt you, please forgive me. I'm so sorry. That was so dumb. God does an amazing work, but as long as we're hiding, trying to cover up this sin, cover up that sin, that lie, we're lying and deceiving, it's a miserable life, and it puts you into a dark place. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says Jesus did at the cross in Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. How? Together with him, united with Christ. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by, and here's how he did it, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of the demands of the law. The law showing you've done this wrong, this wrong, this wrong, this wrong. And God has said, it's all canceled. The debt is done. It's gone. You don't need the president of the United States to cancel all student debt. It's done. It's gone away with forever and ever. This he set aside, and here's how he did it, nailing it to the cross. And then the impact of that is he has disarmed Satan and all his demons, the rulers and authorities. And you know what Satan and his demons do? They accuse and condemn you. Yeah, you think God's really going to love you, but look at what you've done. Look at what you've said. Look at how you've hurt that person. Look at what you think about. Look at what you've seen. Look at how often you are so inward, so disgusting, so sinful. He has disarmed that power. It is an incredible thing that God takes our confession and repentance, the revealing of our hearts, and laying it to him and saying, Lord, I trust you with my life and my reputation. And God doesn't take that and just stomp on it. He nails it to the cross to free you from it forever. He who the sun sets free is free indeed. That's not just some pithy saying. It is a promise. It's a truth. And he's put Satan to open shame. The cross with Jesus naked, dying in front of everybody, it's meant to be so shameful. But that very cross God would use to put to shame Satan and all sin forever and ever. So we who are dead, who are covered in deep sin, who are ashamed, enslaved by disgrace, Jesus canceled our debt, our sin, our shame, and he nails it all on Christ at that cross. It's not just the cross. Jesus' whole life is a shameful life. It's a life of disgrace. You wouldn't want Jesus' life. You know why? It, think of how it starts. It starts in the Gospels with two genealogies, one in Matthew and one in, in Luke. And in both, it tells the story of all of who are Jesus' ancestors. Who are Jesus' ancestors? Abraham. I know a lot of us think, well, Abraham's father of faith. He's so great. But 
How many of you husbands have ever um, said to your wife, wife, you go over there, you know that thief that's going to mug us? Can you go over there and say you're alone and I'll be over here, make sure I'm okay? I mean, that's essentially what Abraham did, but far worse. Abraham said, you know, Sarah, uh, when we go, this, this king is going to think you're so beautiful and he's going to try to take you and so he's going to kill me for it. So can you do me a favor and just say you're my sister? And then, um, and then when we go, I'll be protected and I'll be okay. It happened twice. <laughs> he didn't learn. This is who is Jesus' ancestor, someone who is a coward. I think for a man, that has to be one of the worst things you can be called as a man, is a coward. And Abraham in that instance, was a coward. Jacob was a scoundrel, a thief, a deceiver. Um, we know Judah, who is Jacob's son, who Jesus is in the line of. Judah had an incestual relationship, unknowingly, because he was actually trying to have sex with a prostitute, but instead ended up having sex with his sister-in-law, who was hidden and disguised. And that son is in Jesus' line. Now, Anyone of you want to say, if you have an incestual relationship in your, uh, with the, that type of scenario, would you put that prominently in your genealogy and say, yeah, I, that's, I'm, that's my great, 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 great grandfather. I'm so proud. It just doesn't happen. Then David, he commits adultery, murders someone. Manasseh, he, he actually offered his own son to be burnt at the fires of Molech, sacrificed his son. And the list is endless, every single one of them. So that's a really shameful family lineage. And I don't know if any of you have a really shameful family lineage, but it's not more shameful than Jesus. I can pretty much guarantee you that. Well, it's not just the lineage. Jesus' life. Remember how Jesus' life begins? His mother conceived without having a sexual relationship with his earthly father, and everyone knew. Jesus, Joseph wanted to you know, divorce her quietly, but Jesus knew that story, and since Matthew and Luke found out that story, it must have been going around. Hey, you know, Mary, she's actually had this, that Jesus is illegitimate. Somewhere along the way, that story was known, so people knew that story. Jesus was homeless, there aren't too many homeless guys walking around the street who are really respected. And then on top of that, he's going around touching lepers, people who you want to run far away from, as well as prostitutes, tax collectors. That's a lot of shame. Let's keep on going with the shame. How does his life end? Well, he's spat on. Anyone been spit on before ever? It's... It's terrible. I, one time I was running, playing football, um, and uh, I just heard, <sighs> and suddenly I looked at my hand, it was just green all over. Someone spat on my hand. I didn't even know, some, someone did that unintentionally. I felt so affected. I was so angry. How dare someone spit? But what about when it actually happens to you intentionally? You, know, there's, you can actually get in trouble from the law for spitting on someone. And then on top of that, Jesus is, he's cursed at, he's mocked, he's stripped of all his clothing, he's beaten, and then of course he's hung on a tree and crucified. 
Why all of this? Did he do anything wrong? No, it's because of our shame. His whole life, his whole family history, his life and death, everything was because of all that we're ashamed of and we're doing so hard to hide it and to make sure that no one knows exactly what we've really done. And I can pretty much guarantee you, because I have many things I don't want to say, this is what I've done publicly, that I'm thinking in my mind or my heart. My friends, this is why every revival movement and time of refreshing comes with repentance, public confession. It happens when someone comes up and says, you know, I've been struggling with pornography and I, I'm just a woeful sinner and I really need help and I ask for you to pray for me. When someone says, I committed adultery and I'm so ashamed I was on drugs. I was, I'm a drunkard. I don't take just a few sips of wine. I actually get drunk every day. I am angry. I have an anger problem. Not a problem. I have the sin of anger. Our society says we have a problem. But if we say I am enslaved to my anger, I'm a resentful man. I love money and possessions. I'm addicted to it. When we hear such confessions, when the Holy Spirit is there, he shows us, well, we're as shameful as well. But that's why Jesus died that shameful death on that cross. And the result is healing. Look at James 5.16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. What's the result? That you may be healed. The answer to receiving healing is not hiding. If you want to be healed, it's not hide your sin and your shame and your sorrows. It's confess it, share it, say, I need prayer, I need you. I can't tell you how many times when someone is sick, they'll say to me, can I share this prayer with you, but don't tell anyone else because I'm not feeling well. And I think to myself, wow, you're not wanting to experience healing. What is so shameful about seeing being sick? There's a lot more. But some of us are so caught up with protecting our reputation, making sure that no one knows that I struggle with my life. If you are on teetering on divorce and every day you're just making it and you're not sharing it with anyone, you will never experience healing. And then is it any wonder that suddenly it's so-and-so got a divorce and we go, well, how did that happen? Because there's so much shame because they don't believe in the cross of Christ that Jesus gave his life for that shame so that you could be set free from it and not enslaved by it forever and ever. Well, my friends, I feel as though we're not going to be a church until we're freed to be able to confess sin but it takes the work of the Holy Spirit. I can't force it. It's not something that we say we do because we have to do it. It's because the Lord loves us so much. This past week, um, Sue and I had the opportunity, just a blessing, before I go to Africa to go, uh, we went hiking in uh, Zion National Park. But in order to get there, we had to fly into Las Vegas. And we've been through, La we, we've never stopped in Las Vegas before. Um, even when we first moved to the Bay Area, we intentionally drove right through Las Vegas because it was, uh, I just did not want to go there. 
primarily because when I was young in college, I had a, and I've shared this with some many of you, that I had a, I was addicted to gambling. I went to Atlantic City throughout college every day almost and lost almost everything, including my freedom. And there's a long story behind that. And so for me, being in casinos is definitely not the best place to be. So I've generally avoided that place. But we flew into Las Vegas, and then, you know, from there, we stayed on the outskirts, didn't go into the Strip or any casinos, and then drove to Utah, came back, didn't see any slots or anything, or went into the airport, we're sitting there, and I look over, and there's this whole row of slot machines, and they're just calling my name, Sam, come and play me. You can make $3 million. I'm just seeing that, the Wheel of Fortune, $3 million, $3 million, and I'm going, oh. I'm looking in my pockets, um, it was so strong, actually, because I'm an addict of gambling. And there was a time where I could not say that. It was too embarrassing, too shameful. But it is the cross of Christ that frees you. For God so loved the world that he gave he delivered his son for my freedom. He who the sun sets free is free indeed. A price was paid. The public dis- disgrace of the cross. If you want healing and freedom, you have to be able to confess your sin with others and pr- ask for prayer. You have to be able to say, Lord, my reputation is so much lower than all that you have done. We are so worried, wanting to be, I want to be known as an awesome parent. You know, look at my children, they did this and this. And so we strive so hard to make our children look good so that my reputation looks good. I don't want anyone to know in the ways in which my marriage is really on the rock. So on Facebook, all the pictures, beautiful, I have yet to see, I don't think I have a picture of a family that is just messed up and there's a comment that says, or a caption that says, we're on the verge of divorce, please help us. Just, I don't think I've ever seen that. I'm not saying do that, but uh, I, I haven't seen that idea even. We're, we don't want anyone to be in our business. If we're struggling financially because we're racked up so much debt because we've made foolish choices when we're young and when we're even now. We don't want anyone to know that we're in this so we can't ever ask for help because we don't want people to realize that we are actually not so good with money. I've been down that road personally and it took someone to come into our lives where we had to finally, or I had to finally, because I was the one who wasn't good with money and I was the one who took us to Chicago and, you know, while Sue was working, I was working on a THM degree and I didn't fully get the degree. I did everything except get it. And one time Sue and I had a big conflict because she said, why did I do this? Why did I? And I looked like a fool. If I cared about protecting my reputation, I would never tell you that story publicly. It would be all about, hey, I have this degree. And you know what? That's what makes me a better pastor, a better Christian. 
but it is not. It's a lie. What makes me the best Christian possible is the public disgrace of Christ on that cross and believing it and living it. So when you take this table, you come to it, come broken. Come confessing. Let's pray. Father, there are a few words that we could say that makes what you have done on that cross a uh, described rightly. Thank you for your son. Thank you, Father, for delivering him for us. We come to this table in need of you. For those who are so, so busy protecting their reputation, making sure that they're not known, that no one knows their weaknesses, help them to see that they'll never experience healing in that light. I pray for repentance, for change. Help us to come to this cross and to kneel before it and to finally hand over everything, hand over our hearts, our reputation, our successes, our failures, our depressions, our sorrows, our griefs, our mournings, our strengths, and give it to you, Lord. And we thank you, Father, for the freedom that has been won for us at that cross. May this church be a church where we are welcoming of the brokenhearted, of the deepest, darkest sinner, knowing that you have the power to save and we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.